Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Made it through the ice. Good job. Shows that you're hardy, North Idaho people. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, you can open up the book of Revelation. If you're using the Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 1089 this morning. Uh, This is part three of our introduction to this book, um, and it will be our last introduction message. We're going to actually start the text next week. Um, If you're like uh, not really a um, background theological minutia person. I'm sorry, we're going to go hard today into that, um, but we'll get actually into the texts of the scriptures next week. As typical, we're going to do Q&R at the end this morning, so if anything comes up that you have questions about, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and send in your questions, and we'll take a look at those when we're done. Let me pray for us, and we'll get going. Lord God, thank you so much for your goodness to us, for your kindness, uh, for the way that you pursue us constantly, the way you invite us into relationship. God, just reflecting this week on Paul's words that in you we live and move and have our being. And yet the freedom that you give us to just wander, to go astray, to have free will and do what we want. Um, God, your grace is so amazing to us. God, help us to recognize that, to turn from our own ways, to turn from the sins that uh, get their hooks in us, to submit our lives to you more fully. God, we're all in process of of becoming aware of those places in our hearts where we are far from you and, and, and by your spirit correcting those things. God, thank you that you don't abandon us and that your love for us never fails. Pray that you would teach us this morning, God, that that these these background ideas that are important to understanding your word but can kind of be heady and complicated, I just pray that you give me clarity as I speak and, and give us all ears to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the movie The Imitation Game... If you've seen it, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Alan Turing, who is a British uh, mathematician and computer scientist in the Second World War, and he is brought into the British military to be a code breaker. There is a machine called Enigma that the Germans use to um, put their messages into code and send them through telegraphs and radio messages to the front lines. And the frontline Germans have another machine, an Enigma machine, that they decode the message with, and they get their message out. And Turing comes on to British intelligence to figure out how to break the code. And the movie is all about how he does that. But the interesting thing about this process of encoding messages is that there's, there's really three stages to it. The German commanding officer has a message that he wants to send to the front lines. And so he gives it to an underling who has this like typewriter looking machine, the Enigma machine, and he types it in and the machine encodes it. It encodes it using a special key that's built into the machine that both sides have access to. And then it sends it off into the airwaves for the other communication partner to pick up and to decode And after you use the key, you could 
decode the message and interpret what it meant. And Revelation, in many ways, is the same. John has a process by which he is receiving a message from God and encoding it. For us, there's a key that we need to have to understand that code. And then we, when we use that key, we can decode the message and begin to interpret what it means and why it matters. And so in this last week of intro this morning, we're going to talk about John's process of receiving the message. We're going to talk about what the key that he uses is, and we're going to talk about how we might go about interpreting the book. So first off, John's process. We can easily make assumptions about what John is doing that skew our understanding of Revelation. And the first thing that we need to remember is that John is writing poetry, not recording video. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Notice the layers here. God gives the message to Jesus, who gives the message to an angel, who gives the message to John. Typically, if, you, if you're familiar with like... Uh, you know, supernatural message from God in Hollywood. What's it look like? You're, you're in a chair and your, your eyes roll back in your head and you, maybe there's a flash of bright light and you start automatically writing. This is not what happens. We have really good reasons to believe that this is not how this process works for John. He's not just seeing a video recording of the future and telling us what he saw. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we said that the word show in verse one means very uh, commonly to communicate with symbols. We've talked about this. This is symbolic imagery. But there's multiple layers of communication happening throughout most of the book. G.K. Beale identifies four different layers of communication. He says, the first one is the thing that John wrote down. The second is what John actually saw. Thirdly, what the symbols that he saw represents. And fourth, the meaning being communicated by those ideas represented in the symbols. And you're like, wow, that's a lot. Here's an example. Revelation 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. So if we slow this down and notice what's going on in this text, John writes down the elder's words. The elder says, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah. He writes, he writes down what he hears. But then John turns, and what does he actually see? A slaughtered lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Now, at that point, we have to do a little bit of work and say, okay, a slaughtered lamb is typically a sacrifice. Seven is, is the number of divine completion. Horns represent power. Eyes represent wisdom or knowledge. And we'll get into this more deeply when we actually get into this text. But we figure out what these metaphors are about, but that we're not done yet because these metaphors don't mean anything to us until we recognize that when we put them all together, they're telling us something about Jesus. They're telling us about who he is, the posture that he takes, the kind of power that he wields. And all four of those communication layers are going on in this one text of the book. 
And it's really important that we keep this in mind. If we skip some of those, we can make Revelation say anything that we want it to. Here's another crazy section, chapter 9. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like woman's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that, their tails, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. So if you look at this text and are tempted to see it as a video tape of the future, you can be tempted to think that this is maybe a description of some kind of modern war machine. Hal Lindsey, famously in the 1970s, uh, conjectured in his, one of his books that these were Cobra attack helicopters spraying nerve gas from their tails. But if you do that, you have to ignore a lot of the work that John is putting into writing this document. Eugene Peterson says, the result of St. John's theological work is a poem. a poem. A poet uses words not to explain something, not to describe something, but to make something. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of imagination. Now, that doesn't mean that Revelation isn't communicating objective reality. I think it is. But it does mean that it gets to it through an imaginative framework. And we've talked about this a little bit. We said in the Psalms, the psalmists tend to use metaphors that aren't literally true, but they point to a bigger idea. We said that Jesus, in his parables, he uses these pictures of life. And we don't ask questions like, well, who was the sower? What kind of seed was it? Where Can I walk along the path that he was sowing? Those questions don't come up because we realize that they are pictures that are pointing to a deeper reality. And this is what John is doing throughout this book. The second thing about John's process that I think we need to be aware of that, is that John is writing down the order of his visions, not the order of the timeline of the future. Throughout the book, John says things like, after this, and then I saw. And it's tempting to think that the book then is in chronological order based on when these things take place. But the book itself makes that difficult. In chapter 6, we read, Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars fell of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs. When shaken by a high wind, the sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. And the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich and the powerful and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So I have a question. What would happen if one star fell from the heavens? End of the world, right? What happens if all the mountains and islands just suddenly were moved out of their places? End of the world. In fact, Throughout scripture, this kind of imagery is used to talk about the end of the world, the, the end of this creation and the dawning of the new kingdom of Christ. 
but we're only in chapter 6. So what's going on? As you read through Revelation, you see this end of the world language, but you aren't necessarily thinking it's the end of the world because it's not the end of the book. But if you start counting, you'll see the same thing happen in chapter 11 with the seventh trumpet, and in chapter 14 when the angel harvests the earth, and in chapter 16 at the seventh bowl, and in 17 and 18 in the fall of Babylon, and in 19 with the rider on the white horse, and in 20 at the great white throne. There's at least seven ends of the world in the book of Revelation. This is what theologians call recapitulation, and I think it's a really strong argument that parts of this book are John seeing the same thing over and over again from different perspectives. And that same thing is the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And because of this, I've come to think that Revelation is much more of an impressionistic painting of the future than it is a play-by-play of the future. John, I think, is circling over and over around the idea that we see in Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel says, in those days... In the days of those kings, the gods of the heavens, sorry, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the fired clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. When we get to this vision in in Daniel 2, we see the kingdom of Jesus Christ founded that destroys all the evil empires of the world. And I think as we read through this book, we'll see that John is given that vision multiple times from multiple different perspectives with multiple different emphases as we go. The third thing about John's process is that we need to remember that John is a participant in the vision, not just a conduit. And this gets to how we understand the inspiration of Scripture in total. Paul says in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But if we aren't careful, again, we can imagine the biblical authors just being overcome by the Spirit of God. Their eyes roll back, they're sitting at their desk, and they just start automatically writing, and the Bible comes out. But that's not what we see Throughout the scriptures, we see the personalities of the authors, the human authors themselves, cooperating with the divine author to create a both divine and human book without error. What we see in the book of Revelation is not John just quickly scribbling down the contents of his vision. The book that we have before us in scripture is a carefully, thoughtfully produced work of art based on the visions that John saw. Last week, I mentioned that some people think that John is not the author of Revelation because the quality of his Greek is not as good in many places as in his gospel. In John's gospel, the Greek is is very well written. In Revelation, it's not always so good. And so some scholars who are critical of scripture generally would say like, well, John didn't write it because whoever wrote it is bad at Greek. And it's kind of true. Revelation is full of grammatical issues. But I think this helps us understand what John is doing. Because I think in it, John is trying to prove a point. In verse 4, 
It says, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. So there's all kinds of formulations in the ancient world of this kind of three-phase acclamation of deity, who was, who is, and is to come. Sometimes it's Zeus, sometimes it's Caesar, sometimes it's Mars. Many authors use this formulation. So John is, is borrowing that. But in the Greek, and we miss this in our English Bibles, but in the Greek, the grammar of this sentence is wrong. And, and this is a small thing, and I, I usually try not to get this grammar nerdy, but I think it's really interesting. So bear with me. If this isn't your thing, it, it won't take too long. But in Greek, the nouns change their spelling based on the role they play in the sentence. This sometimes happens in English. Like, so if, the, if you think of the word knife... If you, if you have more than one knife, you change the spelling to knives. If you have more than one foot, you change the spelling to feet. Singular and plural versions of the word are different. The pronouns, the plural pronoun, we, us, and our, depending on the role that that word plays in the sentence, we change it to fit where it's supposed to go. In Greek, all the nouns do this. And, the, and different prepositions get attached to different kinds of nouns. So I've got some, I've got some slides here. Maybe this will help it a little bit. So in Revelation 1.4, we read, from the one who is. That's three words in Greek. Apa, ha, on. Apa is from, ha, the, the O is the, and one who is is just that two-letter two letter WV looking thing. The problem with this is that it is grammatically incorrect. Uh, in the second slide... The right way to say this is apahoantos, because that yellow word needs to change its spelling because of the way that red word works. Anytime you use the word in red, you use the word in yellow. And John very clearly does it wrong. And it's not just kind of wrong, it's like grade school wrong. Like if your second grader comes home with a paper that says, I are happy today, you're like, oh, that's cute, right? But this is, what, this is the level of what John is doing. Anyone who reads Greek would be going, um, who wrote this? But weirdly, John gets his grammar right most of the time. So what's going on? If you go back to the book of Exodus in chapter 3, Moses goes to the burning bush. He sees it burning. It's not being consumed. He comes up and God announces himself to Moses and says, take off your shoes. It's holy ground. And um, they have this dialogue. And, and Moses is, this is the ch- uh, chosen vessel that God is going to use to deliver his people from Egypt. And Moses says, well, when I get there and they ask me, the, what's the name of the God that sent me? If I go to the Israelites... Chapter 3, verse 13, and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Many of you are familiar with this. This is, uh, Jesus uses this language a lot to identify himself with the Father. I am who I am. The self-existent one is my name. Now, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, 
But by the time of the early church, many Christians read it in Greek, just like we read it in English. The language of the time was Greek. Especially non-Jewish Christians in these seven churches would have read the Old Testament in Greek. And so in Exodus, in Greek, I am the one who is. And in Exodus, this is the right grammar to say this statement. So what John is doing is he's taking the grammar from the book of Exodus for the name of God. And he's inserting it into Revelation in a grammatically incorrect way because anybody that has read through Exodus and knows their Greek is going to go, Oh, that sounds just like the name of God from the book of Exodus. And this happens over and over and over again. John does poor Greek grammar because he's trying to get us to think of something else. And the reason I bring that up, other than I think it's just super cool, is that this isn't John just waking up from a dream and like quickly scribbling down what he remembers from it. He is carefully crafting this book to the smallest detail for theological purposes. And we need to remember that as we read. It's going to come up a lot. So those are some things about John's process that I think are important for us to understand. So so we said that that when you're going to encode something, you've got a process, and then on the other side, you've got a key that you use to decode the message. So what's the key here? The key to the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. The only way to understand the book of Revelation is by way of the Old Testament. John is obsessed with the Old Testament. G.K. Beale says, the Old Testament in general plays such a major role that a proper understanding of its use is necessary for an adequate view of the apocalypse as a whole. But the crazy thing is there are zero quotations from the Old Testament in this book, which is really weird. Like, if, if, you've, if you've been reading the New Testament for a while, you've seen this. In, in Matthew 3, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. If you're reading from the Christian Standard Bible, which we teach from and are in the Pew Bibles, it actually puts quotations in bold. And, and it's, it, it calls them out that he's quoting the Old Testament. And Matthew is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. But you will find this zero times in Revelation. John just starts writing stuff. And it's up to us to know the Old Testament well enough to say, oh, I know what he's thinking of. I know what he's talking about. And this makes Revelation kind of an insider's book, right? In order to understand it, you need to be in the know. This happens all the time in our, in our social circles. We'll, we'll say things out of context, and some people will get it and other people won't, right? If I say your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries, some of you laugh because you know what that is, and others of you are like, what are we doing now? Because I'm quoting a Monty Python sketch, and I'm, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> or if I say the truth is out there, some of you who are X-Files fans know what I'm talking about. The rest of you just totally went over your head. 
If I just kind of casually say, if you like it, then you better put a ring on it. Some of you get that, others of you don't, right? Quotations are for introducing people to new information, right? You know, I do it a lot. You know, I'll, I'll say this scholar or this church father says, and then I'll read the quote. But just dropping lines assumes that the audience is already familiar with the source. And this is what John does all the time. He assumes that his audience has just just such an excellent understanding of the Old Testament. There are various ways to count, but there are 404 verses in Revelation, and there are over 500 times that John refers to the Old Testament. Um, Here's a chart by a scholar named Steve Moise. He counts 579 times. Um, You can see most of them come from Isaiah, but quite a bit from the Psalms, some from the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, little Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the Minor Prophets are on the right side. But John, again, over almost 200 times more than actual verses in the text, John is thinking about something that's going on in the Old Testament. So if we're going to understand this book, we need to be people that understand the Old Testament. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time referring back to other parts of the scriptures. So the Old Testament is the key to John's writing process. So, so how do we actually interpret the book? And, and for this last question, I'm, I'm going to go over some different ways that different people have seen this book throughout the centuries. Most interpreters see something important in verse 19. It says, therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And so there's this idea that, okay, these three buckets, what you've seen, what is, and what will take place after this, this matters to this book. But then everybody disagrees about what that actually means. And so there's, there's four basic frameworks through the history of the church for understanding this book, and they fall along a two-axis grid. And so this grid here, if we get that slide, there you go. This grid is between the past and the future and the idea of looking to the text and looking through the text. And what I mean by that is to look to the text is to read it, to point to actual things that are happening, objective realities. To look through the text is to use it to search your heart and to shape you. And so the first view that is common is called the preterist view. The preterist view lands way up there in the corner. It looks to the text to explain objective reality, but it says that objective reality is in the past. John was writing to the first century situation, and almost all of the events of the book happened either in 70 AD when the Romans took the temple, or in the 400s when Rome itself fell. Now, there's a couple versions of preterism. There's, a, there's something called a full preterist and a partial preterist. And the, the thing I would say about that is the full preterist view that says that everything about the scriptures has been fulfilled is actually what I would call heresy. And I don't, I don't like the word heresy. We use heresy a lot, and I think we use it badly. But to say that the return of Christ as prophesied as a future event has already happened, and there are some people that would argue that, puts you outside the bounds of what I would consider Christian orthodoxy. 
Partial preterism, on the other hand, says that most of the stuff that has been prophesied about the future has already happened, except for those parts concerning the return of Christ. And there are many faithful evangelical Christians who believe that. So preterists would look at this text and say, the beast is Nero. The temple is Herod's temple in the first century. The three and a half years is the time that the Roman armies were besieging Jerusalem. And honestly, this view makes a lot of sense to a lot of the book. But I think it has a hard time mapping onto everything in the book. And it just misses some things that just don't seem to fit. And we talked about the date last week. If you hold to a late date, if you hold that John wrote this book in the 90s, then the whole thing falls apart because it can't be prophecy anymore if it all happened in the 70s. Uh, If you're interested, Ken Gentry is a popular proponent of preterism. He wrote, he's written several books. He has a whole bunch of YouTube videos about his views. Um, They're very helpful from that perspective. The second view is called the historicist view. And the historicist view is still primarily looking to the text to give us facts. But it says the book of Revelation spans all of church history. If you ever heard that the church of Ephesus stands for the church from 30 to 100, the apostolic church, Smyrna for 100 to 300, Pergamum for 300 to 500, Sardis from 500 to 1500, Thyatira from 1500 to 1700, Philadelphia from 1700 to 1900, and Laodicea is the end times church. If you're familiar with that framework, that's a historicist understanding that that the book just maps on to all of the history of the church. The problem with this approach is that different interpreters assign completely different meanings to the text based on when they live. So a Christian living close to the year 1000 sees all of this stuff happening in the first thousand years of the church and anticipates Jesus to return in the year 1000. In the 1500s during the Protestant Reformation, the reformers, many of them looked back on Revelation and said all of church history is detailed in Revelation and the Pope today right now is the Antichrist, the beast, and the end of the world is nigh. And then a few hundred years go by and somebody has to fix it a little bit because the facts have changed. Because of that, many, very few people are historicists in the present day. It's it's just kind of an incoherent way to understand the book. The third view is the idealist view. The idealist view, it goes all the way over to the look-through side. And the idealist is much more concerned about what Revelation teaches the church today whenever it exists, about living lives devoted to Jesus. Greg Beale says the idealist approach affirms that Revelation is a symbolic portrayal of the conflict between good and evil, between the forces of God and of Satan. And because of this, the message of Revelation is timeless. While the preterist and the historicist get into trouble pinpointing how all of the symbols are connected to actual events, the idealist isn't really concerned about actual events because these are about spiritual truths that John is communicating. Eugene Peterson says it this way, my primary question before the text has not been, what does this mean, but how does this work in the community of believers in which I am a pastor? And I have to say, I find this perspective very helpful. This is a book, like I said a couple weeks ago, that we are called to obey. We are blessed when we read it and when we obey it. 
There are timeless truths in here for all Christians everywhere. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and we are at war with Satan until Christ returns. This is true. When we put the events of this book either all in the past, like the preterist does, or all in the future, we'll talk about that in a minute, we can disconnect it from our own lives. And I think that's a mistake. However, the book does seem to be talking about at least some concrete realities, right? The idealist, in order to remain orthodox, has to say at least Jesus' return at the end is really going to happen. Sam Hamstra, who is an idealist, explains uh, the revelations spiritually. He uses the symbols uh, to explain kind of this uh, devotional discipleship to Jesus kind of process throughout the entire book until he gets to chapter 20. And then he says, this vision is unlike most of the book. It includes some symbolism, but for the most part means exactly what it conveys. And if you've read chapter 20, it's, it's pretty crazy too. Like the whole thing is pretty crazy and symbolic. But I do have to affirm that Jesus is going to come back. <laughs> so this idealist goes, yeah, it just is pretty straightforward. I think that's a little sketchy. If you're interested in idealism, Eugene Peterson's commentary on Revelation is excellent, and he's firmly idealist. He has no concern for predicting anything. He just wants it to bear weight on his congregation today. And it's, it's a really beautiful devotional commentary. Michael Gorman's book, Reading Revelation Responsibility, Responsibly, which I, I referenced last week, is also very helpful, and it is basically idealist in its framework. The fourth framework is the futurist framework. The futurist is down in the lower left corner, and the futurist is a lot like the preterist in that they see direct, concrete, prophetic fulfillment in the text, but instead of happening in our past, it's still in our future. And this is the view that most people think of when they think of prophecy, right? Now, there's two flavors of this view. I want to talk about both of them. The first one is called dispensationalism. This is by far the most popular view of the end times as a category in the church. If you're familiar with the work of Hal Lindsey or the Left Behind books, uh, either with Kirk Cameron or Nick Cage's movies, uh, both excellent film. <laughs> can't, can't say that with a straight face. Um, this is dispensationalism. This is a, it's, a, it's a framework of, of how the end of the world progresses, right? And it involves Revelation, it involves Daniel, it involves uh, Jesus in, in Matthew with the Olivet Discourse. Dispensationalism came to be uh, in the 1850s. There's a guy named John Nelson Darby who uh, crafted this system of understanding the scriptures and prophecy specifically in England. In 1909, a guy named Cyrus Schofield, who was a fan of Darby's work, published the first reference Bible. If you've ever heard of the Schofield Reference Bible, many of you maybe have a Schofield Reference Bible. This was, if you didn't know this, this was the first Bible that had notes in it. Today, like everybody's study Bible has, this is the text of scripture and these are the notes. But Schofield was uh, breaking new ground. He's never, nobody had ever done this before. And the notes he put in Revelation were all based on Darby's dispensationalism. And so this view caught on throughout the church. 
Uh, figures like D.L. Moody in the early 20th century were dispensationalists. Billy Graham in the mid-20th century was a dispensationalist. I, I mentioned Hal Lindsey in 1970. He published The Late Great Planet Earth, which was a dispensationalist account of the future. And it sold more copies throughout the 1970s than the Bible did. Later on in the 1990s, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote the Left Behind books and the films. And so this is kind of just popular level. This is how the Bible talks about the end of the world. But no one believed this for 1,800 years of the church. And so while that doesn't necessarily mean that it's false, it does make me kind of go, is, is that the best way to understand the book? I don't think so. But there's another kind of futurism. There's a futurism that might be called historic futurism. Because since the beginning of the church, Christian readers have read Revelation and seen that it is definitely talking about the end of history and the consummation of the kingdom of Jesus. Um, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Origen and Tertullian and, I mean, name after name after name in the early centuries of the church saw Revelation as predicting a far future time when Jesus would come and return and literally, visibly set up a kingdom on the earth. And there have been strains of futurism throughout. Modern scholars who are more historic futurists who don't see the dispensationalist model as effective in its understanding of the text, but still believe in a future fulfillment of Revelation or uh, people like George Ladd or Tom Schreiner, Robert Mounts, Webb Mealy. They're all generally futurist in their reading of the book. And if, if you know anything about me, you know what I'm going to say. I think we can learn a lot from all of these perspectives. I think there's something to be said for the preterist view that says these people in the first century need to be able to understand this book. And if they don't, then something's wrong. I think there's something to be said for the idealist perspective that says, hey, we're called to obey this. We need to take this text and apply it to our lives. It's not just some distant word about the future. It's about you and I now. And I also think the futurist has something to teach us because there's obviously some stuff going on here that looks like the end of the world and we're not there yet. So I think we need to pay attention to what's happening in the first century. I think we need to realize that the kingdom of God and the powers of evil are still at play today and have been throughout Christian history. And I think there will come a time when the final expression of Satan's power will be crushed by the physical, visible return of Jesus to transfer the world into his new way of doing things and set up his kingdom in full. So that's gonna be my framework. You're welcome to disagree as always. Maybe you could call it eclectic. But I think there's wisdom that we can glean from many different points of view when it comes to reading this book. And if you haven't realized yet, this is the most complicated book in the Bible. And I don't have many answers, if any. I don't know. Maybe I have zero. But I do want us to be a people that claims the blessing of reading this book and obeying this book together. And so we're going to work through it over the next 10 months, section by section, and ask questions of the text, doing our best to pay attention to the Old Testament, 
to pay attention to what's going on the first century in the context of the Roman Empire, to pay attention to what's going on in the first century in this room, in our hearts and lives, and also to pay attention to what is being said about the future coming of the kingdom of God. And we're going to try to hold all those things in tension all at once. Let's do some Q&R. Since the Greek errors are actually clues to Old Testament texts, which modern translation best acknowledges and facilitates John's intention the best? (laughs) I don't know. I Sometimes that's just hard. Like a a lot of times when you ask questions about getting down to the more uh, intricacies of the Greek and the Hebrew, like the English just doesn't do it. Um, If you've ever studied Spanish or French or Russian or any other language, there's just some things that you can't say in another language. Um, I think most of your standard modern translations are great. I mean, the NIV, the CSB, the ESV, the NASB, the the King James, if you like the older language, those are all valuable, good translations. Um, You really need help of someone that studied the Greek deeply to walk you through that. Uh, And for most of those things. And I'll point some of them out as we go. I mean, there's a lot of them, um, but it doesn't, it's really difficult to get them just out of straight English translation. What about a view that pretty much covers the whole graph? I've heard some preachers teach and it feels like they believe all of what you said. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in some ways those views are compatible, right? But in other ways they're mutually exclusive. Like if, If Martin Luther's pope was the Antichrist, then he's not some future ruler, and he's not Nero in the first century. Um, And we have to be careful about what, about how we give multiple meanings to the scriptures. There are some places where, where the scriptures are talking about more than one thing at once, but they can't be talking about everything at once. And so that's the some of the work that we have to do is to say, okay. Does this particular idea only have one right answer or does it have multiple right answers? And sometimes you can say it has multiple. I mean, like if you think about the idealist view where you're applying it to your life in the church whenever, like that always works. We should always be there. But when you think about the temple in chapter 11, is the temple Herod's temple in the first century? Is it some future physical temple that the Jewish people are going to construct on the Temple Mount in our world? Is it Ezekiel's kind of end of the world temple as part of his prophecy in chapter 40 through 48 of his book? Not all of those things can be true. And so you have to kind of decide which one best fits the evidence. Um, So as much as I love to mix and match things, we're there are going to be some things that we're going to have to go like, this is what I think is the right answer. I could be wrong, but it can't be both. Not always anyway. Which view is the one where nowadays we hear everything going on, all these things are happening right now? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, if I understand this question right, it's primarily futurist, right? It, and it, it tends to be dispensationalists because the dispensational system 
what it has going for it is it's very thorough. It has a lot of the future plotted out on graphs and charts. The downside to that kind of work is that some uh, modern interpreters see things happening in the world and they map them onto Revelation, but they do it kind of all the time. And I've, um, I grew up in a dispensationalist kind of environment, kind of came of age uh, learning about prophecy when I was in junior high. And so for the last 30 years, I've heard people say, this in Europe corresponds to this in Revelation. And then that thing in Europe implodes or goes away or changes. And then the same people come and go like, no, it wasn't that, it was this. That corresponds to that. And at some point, somebody's going to be right, probably. And maybe that's what we're banking on. It's just like, if I just keep throwing darts, one of these days, I'm going to get it right. But I kind of lost patience for that. So I'm not, I'm not super interested in making a lot of predictions that are that precise. Um, it's possible. I mean, you can throw out all kinds of things. You know, there's a war going on in Israel. It could spark into a greater war, and you can connect that to Ezekiel. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that you could do. And if you're familiar with that kind of genre of Bible prophecy teaching, it happens all the time. And I could be totally right. Or the church could continue to propagate the gospel into the world for another thousand years. And there's, and there's nothing that says that that's not the way it's going to happen. Because if you, again, if you read Christians around the turn of the first millennium, the year 1000, they were sure Jesus was coming back any day. And they could point to emperors and kings and popes and plagues and say like, look, it's happening just like Revelation said it would. And we're, two, we're a thousand years from that now. And we can do the same thing. And I, what I'm afraid of is that we can just make the same mistakes and be too sure about things um, that we need to hold a little more loosely. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we're going to take communion. Just like your view of Revelation can be a bridge from the past to the present to the future, the communion table is definitely that. It reaches all the way back to the Exodus. If you, if you recall, Jesus instituted the, the, the communion meal during the Passover celebration, the celebration of the people of God being rescued out of Egypt and, and receiving salvation from the wicked Pharaoh. And then it runs through the cross as Jesus reinterprets it about his own death and resurrection. And then it continues on through our worship as we gather week after week after week to pledge our allegiance to Jesus through the meal and continues on into the future when Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I do it at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, if, if you, you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Christ, uh, I would just invite you in a few minutes to come up and, and take the bread and the cup and take it back to your seat. You're welcome to sit or stand as we worship. You're welcome to come to the prayer rugs and kneel and pray. Just spend some time with the Lord. Um, I know this, is, um, this hasn't been a very devotional uh, sermon this morning. Um, but if I would say one thing about that, God is sovereign. God is in control. As much as we have questions that are maybe unanswerable, he does not. And if you're in a place 
where you're afraid of what's happening around the world, where you're afraid of your own mortality, maybe you're just afraid of of where your next paycheck's coming from, none of those things are a surprise to God. Uh, And he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. So I just encourage you as we sing together, as we remind each other of those truths through these lyrics, to just spend some time reflecting, cultivating gratitude in your heart for who he is and his love for you. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.